Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. dissatisfaction right now currently with the electoral system and with both of the major parties. Like People are tired of the Tories. People are tired of labor. And I think the Liberal Democrats are providing a really nice third way through. And I think that's always sort of been the thing that we have provided. And I think but what's changed is with COVID and with the current crises that are happening around the world, including climate change, people are actually sitting down and like listening to us and looking at what we have to offer and that you know things don't have to be right or left. There is sort of a middle ground and a, a social way forward and a liberal way forward, more importantly. So since 2016, we've started to see a sort of realignment in British politics. We're seeing the uh, northern areas heading in a much more conservative direction, and the London southeast areas tend to be heading in a a more left-wing centrist position, and the Liberal Democrats have done particularly well around areas like Buckinghamshire, Surrey, around London southeast. Mm -hmm. So... Do you think we're starting to see a renaissance of the Liberal Democrats in this age of realignment that we are currently living in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the recent election result that we had um, from the by-election in Cheshire and Emerson is a huge signifier for that. People are tired of the Tories. They're tired of the Tories ignoring them and not listening to them. There's a similar thing up north with Labour. The reason why Labour lost so many seats is people felt like they weren't being listened to and they were being ignored. And, you know, and that's what I was saying earlier about how the Liberal Democrats are like another option for people. People are suddenly tired of the status quo and they're seeing us as a viable option that stands up for the values that they care about. But just on, on those values and the, the ideas of the Liberal Democrats, I mean, from, a, from an opposition perspective here, it, the Liberal Democrats aren't exactly the most groundbreaking campaigning force at, at the moment, given that the party, to, just to give an idea of some of the campaigns that's going on, the party's actively campaigning to give NHS workers a pay rise, something that has just happened in the last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, the party is actively campaigning to stop 
stop the closure of the Department for International Development, the Department hasn't closed it, simply moved inside the Foreign Office. And, you know, gi giving EU citizens the right to stay, which they already have, they, they just have to do the application form online. So, do the Liberal Democrats really have any original ideas to offer the electorate? I think we absolutely do because our values are equality and freedom to be who you are and there are so many ways that both Labour and the Tories are trying to crunch down on us in that way. Um, you know, all of the controversy that's happening in both the Conservatives and in Labour about trans rights, um, you know, all these issues we're having about foreign aid, like these values of equality and freedom extend beyond the borders of the United Kingdom, they extend to our sister nations. Um, so we are offering that sort of broader perspective, talking, going back to the EU citizens who are having to, you say it's just an online forum, as an immigrant myself, I know the immigration process is very much a part of that hostile environment, and it makes it difficult. It's just a forum, but the complexities of actually going through that process is very hard, and if you talk to a lot of EU citizens or people from other countries, they'll tell you that the current immigration system is not welcoming. They don't want us here. Um, and, but the Liberal Democrats want to change that. They want to say we're an open country, we love the global community, and we know that having new talent and that sort of thing will make us a richer country. Um, and we offer that kind of vision, and I think that's really important in a world where globalization is the future. Globalization and that cooperation with other countries is so critical right now, and I think we need to be looking at that more. Well, you, you mentioned there the hostile environments that the Home Office in particular pursued when uh, Theresa May was the Home Secretary. Mm -hmm. But that hostile environment, that was created during the coalition government. <laughs> where, I think you know where I'm leading to with this. It was created under the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats. So does that mean that the Liberal Democrats have previously been in favour of a hostile environment? I don't think the Liberal Democrats, as part of our core values, have ever been in favour of the hostile environment. I think in a lot of situations with coalition, and the coalition was a little bit before my time in British politics, I will admit. Um, but I think there were a lot of situations where our hands got tied and a lot of mistakes that we made in certain areas. But I think what the party has been trying to do is trying to say that we are moving forward from that. These are the things that we stand for. There might have been mistakes. There might have been situations where we voted and we didn't want to vote that way or you know, we got it wrong. Every party gets it wrong sometimes. Like It's the way politics works. Not all the decisions are going to be right. But what is really important is that vision going forward and rebuilding that trust. And I think we've been working really hard to rebuild trust in voters, looking at the work that our council groups do, looking at the work that you know the Liberal Democrats were doing in the Welsh um, you know, Assembly. That's incredible work from Christy Williams. You know, And it's rebuilding that trust and showing that we can do things and we are doing progressive things and these will help you in the future. I think that's where we sort of need to move forward from the coalition. You used the word progressive there. Um, this is a word that I've heard repeated a lot throughout this conference, and uh, I've spoken to members and delegates to the conference about it, and it, you know, it's, it's such a broad word, but yet it seems to encapsulate much of what the Liberal Democrats stand for. So to you, what, what does progressive mean? What does progressive mean to the Liberal Democrats? So progressive for me is, you know, it's moving forward with a good cause and hope for the future and making sure that we're including everybody, not leaving anybody behind. I think a lot of the time, especially with the Tories, there's been this idea of like progress for progress sake, you know, and not thinking about, you know, the people who, you know, can't necessarily afford heating and homes and what are we going to do about, like I was talking earlier about people and trans rights and that sort of thing. And for us, progressive is moving forward, but making sure we bring everybody up with us. Okay, well, 
and of course one, one of the major aspects of progress in the 21st century and something that we need in the UK in particular is the is housing. We know that housing has been a major, major issue at the moment. We are in a chronic housing shortage, some even call it a housing crisis. Mm -hmm. And with that, I want to ask you about the Lib Dem success at the Chesham and Damsham by-election. Mm -hmm. Now the party swept to victory in this former Conservative safe seat, but Lib Dem success is starting to come through at the expense of house building. House building and well, anti-development was the reason why the Liberal Democrats won the seat. So what, what is the party's policy on house building? Because the, the young Liberals are actively campaigning to build, 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 build uh, essentially a YIMBY group. <laughs> but there have been a, a lot of uh, uh, there has been a lot of media coverage in particular from uh, the leader of the, the Liberal Democrats, Fred Davey, who has taken um, a more anti-development stance, to, almost to the point in some cases of being a NIMBY, especially in these areas like Buckinghamshire and uh, the, the South East that the Liberal Dems are gaining in. So what is the party's policy on housing? So I think I would say being anti-housing is maybe going a little bit far, I'm not going to lie. Um, obviously everybody you know, has their own ideas about it, but um, what I think is, I, like the Young Liberals, because housing is such a massive issue for young people, it's something that we're really radical about. And I think having that radical push is really important for pushing changes forward. I wouldn't say that the federal party, though, is anti-housing. I think the important thing about building housing is there's no point in building a development in the middle of nowhere, right? It's about the infrastructure. Like, it's about making sure that you know there's jobs nearby or there's jobs that can grow in that area. It's about making sure that there's connections with trains or, well, ideally trains, but you know roads and that kind of thing as well. Um, making sure that people have access to hospitals, childcare, schools. Like, you can't just build a house in a, in a field and without the proper infrastructure. And so I think having that sort of, you know, requirement for building houses is like, you know, being making sure that we're putting them in appropriate places and places that are actually going to help communities and help people thrive. I think that's okay. And I think that's okay to be putting pressure on the government and developers to be meeting those high standards because there's no point putting people in low standard housing. We already have enough of that. And the nightmares that people are going through with cladding and, you know, landlords that are not fixing mold and council housing that's falling apart. It's horrific. We shouldn't be letting people live in that. And so I think having that high standard is completely acceptable. And, and of course, cladding has been a major, to the point of even saying a scandal from the, the government, I think mm -hmm. it's fair to say, especially in the wake of the Grenfell Tower uh, tragedy. And, mm -hmm. You know, seeing the retrospective replacement of cladding, it's been very slow, very costly. Mm -hmm. So fr from a, the Liberal Democrats' perspective on this, how do you propose we fix the cladding uh, scandal? Is, is, is there a, a realistic solution to all this? Because it, you know, it's, all, it's very easy to say, oh, well, we just replaced the cladding with something that's suitable, mm -hmm. but it's a very expensive thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually live in London. I used to live really close to Grenfell, actually. I've moved now. But everywhere in London, you see memorials to Grenfell. You see people with posters outside their windows about cladding on their own buildings and trying to get that replaced. Local councils, um, especially Liberal Democrat councillors, are really calling for this to be fixed. And you're right, it isn't, nothing is ever as simple, and money is always a bit of an issue when you're trying to solve these problems. But it does feel like there's a lot of stagnation and a lot of reluctance because, it's, because it is expensive. But at the end of the day, cladding and the damage and harm that it can cause leads to people's deaths. We, we don't need another Grenfell. This is actually a matter of health and safety and life and death. And I think it needs to be given more attention than it is. I, 
it. Like I said, it's not a simple problem, but I feel like it's not being given the proper attention it needs. So obviously cladding is one facet of the whole housing crisis that we find ourselves in, but how do young liberals in particular propose that we fix the crisis that we find ourselves in, but particularly for getting first-time buyers on the property ladder and just making sure particularly younger people are able to just get a foot on that ladder. How do you propose we come up with a solution to this? Well, I think the simple, overly simple answer probably is build more houses. <laughs> um, you know, supply and demand, right? If you have more, they, they do go down in price. And that is a lot of the issue. Is a lot of people um, who do oppose housing developments and that sort of thing, they oppose them because they don't want their value in property to go down because property is looked at as an asset. It's an investment now. It's not just, you know, something you use to live in. And I think that kind of mentality has made it really, really difficult for young people to get onto the property ladder because, you know, people realize that there's not enough housing so they can sell their property at a much higher value. Wages aren't keeping up. And so it becomes impossible unless you have, you know, a trust fund or you somehow made millions while you were younger or, you know, and that's, so I mean, the basic of it is build more houses. Obviously, again, that comes down to spending. And like we were saying earlier, you can't just build houses anywhere. It's about where they go and what goes on around them. So it's a very complex it's a very complex problem and I don't think there's a simple solution I think it takes a lot of different little aspects going in and making sure that this problem sort of goes away by again building that infrastructure you know building those houses you know I, there's an argument for potentially increasing wages because I don't think minimum wage I don't think is necessarily livable right now for a lot of people um, and I think all these sort of things build into this housing crisis and why a lot of young people do struggle okay well let's move away from housing and let's look at another huge issue that is facing the UK at the moment and that is the future of the union and you know we've seen that the Liberal Democrats in Scotland at the moment are undergoing a leadership contest and you know that ultimately will decide Scottish Liberal Democrats position on the union but will the Liberal Democrats be supporting another independence referendum before the next general election which is currently projected to be 2024? So the Liberal Democrats are unapologetically unionist, pro-union. The United Kingdom is better and stronger together. It's got a wonderful, rich history together. It's a strong force when it works together. And I think if you start breaking it apart into these smaller nations, everybody loses. Look at what happened to us when we left the European Union, right? It's, it's becoming a bit of a disaster. We're losing our power. And it would be the same if we started breaking apart into smaller independent nations. There is potentially an argument for federal, federalism. I, I myself come from a federal country, um, so I know the advantages and disadvantages of the federal system, and I think that would probably be a good way of making sure that the all four nations have their powers, because I think allowing some sense of you know independence and some sense of control over certain things is important. I think having that sort of you know that government that is directly it's why local groups work so well is people have that person they can directly go to. Um, and I think having that sort of localism and then it is really beneficial. And I think potentially the federal way is the way to solve this problem a lot better. I don't think independence is the way forward. I don't think many liberal Democrats, if any, think independence is the way forward either. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Brexit. <laughs> oh, how could I not? <laughs> of course, of course. We know it's been the most dominant issue throughout the past five years. And, you know, again, I've spoken to a number of delegates at the conference about this and there is very much a consensus that you know, the Liberal Democrats are a 
pro-European Union party. Mm -hmm. But I suppose my question is really that you, in looking at the Union, you, you propose perhaps a federal model, but the European Union is heading in a much more federalist model and it's seeing the other 27 member states essentially giving a huge amount of their sovereignty to what is essentially a faceless organisation. So, I suppose, I suppose really my, my question is, is, is the European Union really the, the model we want to uh, base the future of the United Kingdom around? I mean, I, the European Union has its flaws. All government systems have their flaws at the end of the day, and the European Union is no exception to that. However, it, it comes back to that thing where it's, you know, we we have lost power by not being in it. We've lost bargaining power. We, you know, we're struggling with trade and that sort of thing with it. We're seeing a lot of effects right now. Um, and the way to change how the, we were a big player in the European Union, let's face it. And now that we've taken ourselves out of it, we've taken ourselves out of the conversation. We've taken ourselves away from being able to change and help model and help lead the European Union and other European nations in a wonderful democratic liberal direction um, and I think that's the main law so you know once you take if you take yourself out of an argument it's sort of you're not going to have any power to change it and I think that's where we've really failed and like I said the European Union is not a perfect situation but we can't change it if we're not there yeah so but the, the idea around the whole EU referendum it was the largest vote the UK has ever held it was yeah. a turnout of 72 percent and Whilst it was a narrow margin for, for uh, Leave winning the referendum, it was still a clear enough one to say, yes, you know, Leave has definitely won this. Mm -hmm. Now, the Liberal Democrats were the leading anti-Brexit party, so I suppose really my question is, is it Liberal or Democratic to wish to overturn the result of a referendum which sought that highest ever electoral turnout simply because the party didn't like the outcome? I, so I don't think it's just that we didn't like the outcome. I think it's also understanding that if you talk to quite a, like a large portion of people who voted in the European referendum and said that they wanted to leave the EU, I mean, a lot of them will potentially be second-guessing it because, again, like we're seeing the effects of it. We're seeing what's actually happening. The reality of Brexit is not what people were told. Where is that $350 million from the NHS, right? Um, well, because of the pandemic, we're now actually heading more towards $400 million week for the NHS, additionally to what was being presented, and that, that number isn't going to come down anytime soon. So, again, that's It's already. unfortunate, though, that a pandemic had to cause that, isn't it, though? It's true, but it's still a, a Brexit bonus, a Brexit dividend. In, in addition to that, we've seen the superb vaccine rollout from the government. Again, that's another Brexit bonus, because if we were still in the European Union, we would have been bound by the European Medicines Agency, which would have restricted the ability to roll out the vaccine so quickly. I mean, you say it's been a superb rollout, but I mean, there's been so much controversy about, you know, whether students would be able to go to university if they didn't have their vaccine. There's been a lot of controversy around the vaccines and how they've been given out to people, so I don't know if that's necessarily a huge win for the government. I mean, it's good that people are getting vaccinated, for sure, but it's definitely had its problems, so I wouldn't say it's an unmitigated success. Um, but going back to your initial question about um, us wanting to overturn the Brexit vote, I mean, a lot of our new membership, um, who have been absolutely wonderful within the party, you know, we have loads of people, a lot of close friends of mine, actually, who said, they're like, I voted to leave the EU in the referendum, and I regret that decision. I realized it was it was the wrong decision, and I didn't, like, I'm not happy with how I voted. 
and now I kind of want to work towards more international Britain. I want to work towards more, you know, Britain with tighter ties to the European Union and, you know, the tighter economic and social and benefits that go with that. Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think a lot, a lot of people are broadly supportive of the idea of a global Britain, uh, the, the idea the government's proposing at the moment to uh, unleash a new Britain on the world that's sort of away from the European Union, which to a large extent controlled our foreign policy and international trade, etc. But it's, it's a new opportunity for the United Kingdom to re really present itself as a new, a new force on the international stage. I suppose one of the benefits of leaving the European Union is the fact that we've been able to design our own trade deals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, simply by leaving the European Union, we've been able to negotiate nearly a trillion pounds extra to our, our economy through these new international trade deals. Mm -hmm. So, again, the, do you not believe that staying in the EU would have been too restrictive for the UK, particularly in this highly globalized world we find ourselves in today? I mean, absolutely not. I think the EU had negotiated some wonderful trade deals with other countries, and I mean, I believe it was the trade deal that Britain was organizing with Australia where, you know, British farmers were upset about what was happening there. So, I mean, again, these trade deals, as much as, you know, they're slowly coming together, some of them are all right, some of them are less good, you know, they're not, again, they're not unmitigated successes. And I would say that some of them are definitely not as good as what we would have had with the European Union, especially considering how big the European market is. Like, it's a massive market on our doorstep. And, you know, we've made it more difficult to deal with that, especially for small and middle, um, middle businesses, right? Yeah, I mean, so. no, no one was uh, suggesting that Brexit was going to be perfect from day one. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, so, but, I mean, you know, we have negotiated a trade deal with the European Union. It's, mm -hmm. you know, like with any agreement, no side is going to get everything that it wants. But mm -hmm. broadly speaking, it's been beneficial to both parties. But I, I just want to come back to the, the Australia trade deal because you know, at the conference today, there has been debate on the Australia trade deal. Yeah. And, you know, there has been some opposition to it mm -hmm. and some of the proposals that it has outlined. But particularly on the on the farming issue, one one of the things that's really struck me as strange about this is that you know it's a mutual recognition of standards between the United Kingdom and Australia. And yeah, I, I do understand and sympathise with some of the concerns of farmers, but most of the proposals around farming won't come in for another ten years or so. So there's plenty of room for manoeuvre and renegotiation on this. And mm -hmm. at the moment, it is simply a, an agreement in principle. Mm -hmm. So is is this Australia trade deal really? so bad for both economies? I mean, I don't think it'll be the end of the world. I don't think anybody's going to go broke off it, but I do always have reservations about the idea that we'll just kick it down the road and try and fix it in a few years because, you know, things change, governments change, and, you know, plans get scuppered. Any time we end up pushing problems down the road looking at climate change, I mean, it just gets bigger and bigger, and then dealing with it becomes more complex. I'm not saying that a trade deal is the same as climate change, but you see what I mean. You can't just keep kicking the can down the road because eventually you're going to run out road, right? Yeah. So, uh, just to return back to Europe for a moment, mm -hmm. the, the Young Liberals have an active campaign at the moment to rejoin Erasmus, which is mm -hmm. the EU's international study program. And the government announced earlier this week the creation of the, the Turing scheme, which replaces the, the Erasmus scheme and has partnerships with almost all Erasmus institutions and participants, and also increases places globally, not just in Europe. So, is this not just a means of trying to stay closer to the European Union rather than actually focusing on what is best for students who want to study abroad? Um, I don't think it. I don't think it's saying it's sort of 
Erasmus for Erasmus's sake. I think Erasmus is a really wonderful program. Uh, many of my friends at university used Erasmus when they were at university. Um, and I think it's, it, again, one of the things, one of the problems with Brexit is we had all this stuff. We had all these wonderful things. We had these trade deals. We had things like Erasmus. And then we decided to take ourselves out. And then we have to set it all back up again. And that takes time and that takes money. Time and money that could be better spent on other issues that are going on in the world, other things that the government needs to be dealing with, both you know at home and abroad. And that, to be honest, is probably what's the most frustrating thing, is spending all this time rebuilding things that we already had. It's but, but, but why concentrate on staying a member of a, Europe, a solely European institution when this new scheme is still offering those same places, but in addition, offering students the ability to study across the world? You know, why study, why concentrate on wanting to study in a continent when students being offered the world? I mean, I, there have actually already been lots of opportunities for students to study um, across the world. Um, like I said, like a lot of university schemes and that sort of thing actually do offer programs that go to the United States and go to China and go to Australia. Again, I've had quite a few friends who took advantage of those opportunities. Um, there's also something called a youth mobility visa, which is a wonderful visa for anybody who's interested. <laughs> um, where basically you can move to, there's a list of quite a few countries that you can move to and work in um, and basically experience life um, and th there are these opportunities and again it just sort of feels like we're reinventing the wheel a little bit um, but. well, well so, something you just mentioned there to move on to a slight tangent is China and it, again this is another major issue that we face in the UK and you know, to their credit the Liberal Democrats have been really leading the way in uh, promoting a, a new China policy that the, the UK should follow in particular supporting the uh, rights for British nationals overseas uh, passport holders from Hong Kong to mm -hmm. have a pathway to citizenship. That's something the Liberal Democrats championed, yeah. the government followed. Yeah. And of course one of the other major issues around China is of course the suspected genocide of the Uyghur Muslims. Mm -hmm. and the Lib Dems have been one of the most vocal voices on this in Parliament and in the media. Mm -hmm. But again, the, the government seems reluctant to actually make that step and de declare it genocide, even though Parliament has recognised it as such. Yeah. So, g given that the Liberal Democrats are leading the way in Parliament, how do you think the, the party should be communicating its vision to the public, particularly on this, because it's, a, it's such a complex topic, but uh, I don't think the public are being given all the information on this mm -hmm. exactly. So how do you think that the party should be conveying its message around this to the public? Well, I think it's one of those things. I think on the one hand, it's complex in the sense that China is a very, very powerful country and nobody wants to upset China. But on the other hand, genocide in itself is not a complex thing. People, you know, every most people, everybody should know that genocide is bad. Um, so it sort of becomes, that's the thing, is we need to just be communicating that, is that genocide, no matter who's perpetrating it, whether they are one of the most powerful nations in the world, it's not okay, and we need to be taking a stand about that. Like I said, our, one of the key things about liberalism and being a liberal democrat is that equality and freedom to be who you are for everybody, not just British citizens, not just European citizens, everybody. And that means standing up for people who are being absolutely persecuted for who they are, being killed and tortured is horrible. And we need to be, I'm happy that the party is taking such a proud, like such a strong stance. It makes me very proud. Um, and I think, I think we should be more vocal about it. I think we should be absolutely communicating it so much more because these are things that people do care about. People see this and they're horrified and they're wondering why we aren't stopping it. And that's the thing is we need to be 
we need to be taking a firm stance on that and we need to be telling the public that this is something we care about and this is something that the government needs to be a lot stronger on than it is. So the, the Liberal Democrats at the moment really seem to be strong on foreign policy. Their message seems to be cutting through the, the in Westminster politics. It seems mm -hmm. to have penetrated the bubble, if you like, of Westminster. Mm -hmm. So I, I suppose really, is, is foreign policy the Liberal Democrats' new uh, leading flagship area? Uh, is, is this where the Liberal Democrats are succeeding? And if that's the case, how can those successes in communicating foreign policy be translated to the rest of the party and the other party policies that it advocates? Well, so I think I think you're right. I think we've had a lot of wonderful success about international relations and foreign policy, and I'm super happy about it. It's an area that a lot of our MPs are very strong in. Um, they have a lot of knowledge and they have a lot of insight into it, and it's wonderful. However, I don't think it's actually the only area that we've had really good cuts through. There's a lot of things that government does that's maybe a little bit quiet and a little bit less looked at by the press, but we've had really, really wonderful work that's been done on LGBT plus rights and women's rights as well. Um, the upskirting bill from a couple years ago, that was a massive win for women and that was something that was championed by Liberal Democrats as well. Um, you know, all the work that we've been doing for trans rights and, you know, making sure one of our key policies is like having um, the ability to put X as your gender on your passport and, you know, trying to provide better mental health support to people who are undergoing transitioning um, and all of these kind of wonderful things to try and help make LGBT plus people feel more a part of society and more included and less threatened and less at risk. And I think we've been doing some really wonderful work on that in government. Um, and it's not as loud as the foreign policy stuff um, in the media, but I think it's stuff that we've been really cutting through on as well, actually. Well, just on, on the whole aspect of the, the work the Liberal Democrats have done around LGBT policy and their promoting women's rights, I mean, the, the idea of, say, a campaign to have X on a passport, for mm -hmm. example, I mean, it, there are critics who would say that's just simply woke culture. And, you know, again, that, that's probably a conversation for another day. But do you not think that those sorts of issues are perhaps needing to say set, go on the back burner for a moment while we focus on getting out of the pandemic and economic recovery and really, really promoting things like, uh, as mentioned before, the, the housing crisis or, um, or uh, prison reform as well, for instance. You, you know, the, these are important issues, but by the same token, that there are much more pressing issues that need uh, attending to urgently, and the Liberal Democrats do need to be an additional opposition voice to that. I think the difficulty with politics is that everything's important at the end of the day. Like, the economy is absolutely important because when you really break that kind of stuff down, that's the difference of somebody's quality of life and that can be the difference of life and death. When you're looking at trans rights issues and access to healthcare um, for trans people, and it, that's a matter of life and death as well. I, recently on Twitter, um, some people might have seen, uh, some people were posting about a woman who was trying to get into her gender clinic appointment. She ended up, it, the wait was so long, I can't remember the actual time length, but she ended up killing herself. Um, and that's, that's that's massive, that's devastating. And that's what I'm saying, is that's the difference between life and death. These are human rights that we're talking about within our own country. This is important. This is this is as important as housing and the economy and climate change, is making sure that people are free to be who they are and can live their lives authentically as who they are. Yeah, and, and we, we know that there's a, a big debate around the, the idea of uh, gender self-identification as well. 
Uh, but particularly around that, you know, there are a number of safeguarding issues around that that have, that have been raised in, in public. And yeah, does the party support gender self-identification? Absolutely, absolutely. Do, you do, are unequivocally. Unequivocally, yes. you are who I identify are as trans women are women, trans men are men. If you choose to identify as neither gender, that's who you are. Okay. Very definitive. <laughs> the electoral successes of the, the Liberal Democrats in recent years, I'm, I'm talking mostly parliamentary level because we know the, the Liberal Democrats do very well at local level. They are very good local campaigners. But looking at this broadly as a, a Westminster electoral successes, the, the party really ha hasn't done well in the last few years. Do, do you think a lot of that is, is down to the party's involvement in the 2010 coalition? Um, I think so. I think, I wouldn't say it's entirely. I think that, I think just, I, there's a massive movement globally, I think just because of the way that the situations are economically with the environment, everybody around the world is struggling to some extent. And you're starting to see these sort of pushes to the extremes all across the world. It's not just in Britain. And I think that means that that center ground, which the Liberal Democrats do occupy, is starting to sort of become a bit sparse of voters. And I think we were kind of, you know, ever since the recession in 2008, this was coming on. And we're starting to sort of, we were feeling those effects a couple of years ago. And then of course I think there are a lot of people who did lose faith in us during the coalition. Um, and so I think we're sort of battling those two, you know, problems. And we have been struggling. Like I said, I think we're on the up now though. I think we're having a slow, a slow regrowth and a slow resurgence. And I think people are, again are starting to pay attention and listen to us and look at us as a viable option and a viable way forward and people who stand up and believe in the things that they believe in. So it's very clear that the Young Liberals are a definite campaigning body that, I think it's also fair to say, has a large level of autonomy from the main party as well. So I suppose my final question really is, what can the youth wings of other major political parties learn from the Young Liberals? I think one of the key things, and one of the things that I'm so proud of with the Young Liberals is like stand up for what you believe in. Like we we have our occasional disagreements with the federal party, but we we resolve them. We talk to them. We have these conversations, and we say this is really important to us, and this is why. And having that conversation, having them sit down and listen, is really important because at the end of the day, these youth wings we're the future of the party. We're not just the future, we're also the present. We have so many young councillors, young people who are running for parliament and who are running for you know Scottish Parliament and the Welsh Assembly. Like we have people who are the present. And the future and it's keeping that in mind about where the party is going and understanding where the youth are coming from and I think having those conversations with your party and standing up for what you believe in is so important. Sarah Copeland, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you so much.